What do we do with people like you in society? People who are talented and brilliant, but also take risks and make mistakes and sometimes say things that are insensitive and some people find oh, always insensitive, yeah. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantin Kissin. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations, with fascinating people. Returning to the show today, we have one of Britain's most brilliant historians and a very controversial one at that, Dr. David Starkey. Welcome back. Hello. Uh, I reference- I'm deeply, I'm going to absolutely put you on the spot. I shall be so straightforward, calm, <laughs> neutral, and totally uncontroversial. Yeah, I doubt that very much, David. Up <laughs> to you to tease it out of me. Um, we, we'll do our best, but welcome back. Uh, last time we had you on the show, as you alluded to in our conversation prior to us starting, we, we were in a very different place, but I put it to you that so were you. How have you been this past 18 months? Uh, much as I am now. Um, I take it you're referring to the unfortunate and dramatic events of uh, last July, or were you just talking about COVID? No, no, I, I was talking about <laughs> the fact that shortly after we had you on the show, you were speaking to Darren Grimes on his show. You made what I think you said in one of your recent interviews were stupid remarks for which you apologized. And there, since then ensued a whole maelstrom of various things. Mm. So tell mm. us about that. Yes, well, I, I did make a stupid remark. I used the word damn in front of the word blacks which was a very stupid thing to do. On the other hand, what I was saying, which is that slavery is not genocide, or at least the Atlantic trade slavery is not genocide, is a straightforward statement of fact. About 300,000 um, uh, black people were uh, exported, or they were treated as chattels, uh, were exported uh, in slave ships to the south of the, what is now the United States, 300,000 within three generations, there are millions. Now that's not a genocide. But of course, what everybody forgets, one piece of slavery was a genocide. And that's the slavery to the Islamic world. That is the slavery that actually goes over land in Africa to what was then called the Ottoman Empire. The best estimates are it was 20 million, 20 million, of whom the men were castrated and the women were kept as concubines. And most of the children, which were of course mixed race, Turkish, or whatever you want to call it, Ottoman and African, the children had their brains dashed out. That is a genocide. But we don't talk about that because there's no white guilt. There's no guilt of David Starkey in that. So we don't talk about it. But of course, and David, that isn't the, the 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 remark that people took the issue with. I think the uh, remark was damn. There were so many yeah, damn. Yeah, it, it, it was, it, it was, was simply. The, it was simply. Of course, it was stupid. It, it what I was in, and he also I even mentioned. Right, come on, let's explore. I'm sure neither of you have ever said a word. Ever, ever, ever said a word out of turn. Mm. Um, I I, it, I committed a second stupidity. I meant to illustrate it by saying there wouldn't be so many in America and my tongue slipped and I said Africa. Deranged. Very, very bad. And for somebody who prides himself on position of language, disgraceful. Mm. On the other hand, one word, damn, Four letters. If people had had their wishes, an entire career would have been destroyed. 
the four letters. Who is actually seriously hurt? Why is a word, one word, given this extraordinary weight? Isn't it a bit religious? Isn't it superstitious? Isn't it a kind of verbal fetishism? Doesn't it smack of national hysteria? In other words, exactly, for example, what happened around the death of Diana, or what the great, another great historian, even greater than me, uh, what Lord Macaulay described as the uh, nothing more ridiculous than the British public in one of its fits of morality. It was a fit of morality. Well, then, we should, we should, no, but come on, we should, you ask, right, why am, I, why am I treating it relatively lightly? No, 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 hold on, hold on. I'm not saying uh, I disagree with you. You know my view on this work yeah. Yeah, and all of that. Yeah. And you know how much we like and respect you on the show. Yeah. Uh, you, you are one yeah. of our favorite guests of all time. No question about that. The, the point I would make to you is I don't think people were concerned about the one word. What a lot of people said at the time, including people we respect also, uh, people like Catherine Burble Singh, who we had on the show, that this wasn't the first time you'd had a slip of the tongue in relation to race. And so, so, the, is, so their perception was, let me just finish yeah, okay. this. Their perception was, that it wasn't a individual instance of a mistake, which we all make, all of us. You alluded to, of course, all of us make slip-ups, but rather that it was a pattern of behavior that was reflective of an attitude towards race. That was the point that people made. Personally, I didn't necessarily agree with that, but that was the point that people made. So what do you say to them? I would love to see what the evidence... You see, again, I'm sorry, I'm really boring. <laughs> I believe in evidence. Mm. Uh, I made a comment at the time of the race riots in 2011, which said something seemed to me to be absolutely true, but was regarded as being outrageous, that these were black riots, which they were. The evidence is absolutely overwhelming. If you actually look at, at the maps of the riots, it was nothing to do directly with impoverishment. There were areas that were very much more impoverished that didn't riot, okay? It was to do with a particular attitude. In other words, a form of imitation of urban behavior that has been imported from America. The riots, you know, shopping with violence, were very, very similar to the pattern that we saw after Floyd's death. Um, and it's a particular imported pattern of behavior, which is not, I think, one that we were used to in Britain. Um, I think it's deeply unfortunate. This is nothing, this is not, so I am not criticizing race. I am criticizing behavioral patterns. I'm not criticizing skin color. I'm, I'm criticizing things that people decide to do, right? In the same way, why was I agitated on the question of whether it's genocide or not? Why does that, why, why, why does that question come up? It comes up because I'm afraid the whole question of slavery, monstrous though it is, is deliberately being weaponized in a specific cultural context, which is why, what I was talking about at the beginning, why what is the most monstrous aspect of the slave trade is deliberately ignored because it does not attack the West. The reason, again, that there's a talk about slavery is genocide, you're a Jew. Unfortunately, there's a great problem with Jews. You are absolutely... We're going to clip that, David, just to let you know. David Starkey, there is a big problem there, with there's Jews. A big problem with, there is a big problem with Jews, which is you are mope, the most oppressed clearly, people clearly. ever. And that is a very jealously guarded status. And it's also one that people are very jealous about. 
black activists are absolutely Palestinian activists are outraged at the fact that the genocide gives you this kind of moral it's, you know it's it is a testament to a sick society that the genocide becomes a kind of badge of pride weirdly and bizarrely and this is why there is the attempt at portraying slavery in exactly this fashion so that you can say the whole of the West is guilty of pseudo-Nazism. Haven't you observed how the left, I think we should start calling them the far left, mm. that is everybody, even faintly to the left of, of Keir Starmer, is far left. Um, look how far to the left he is. Have you not noticed how they're all throwing around the term Nazi, the term fascist? Have you thought of the disgrace, for example, of talking about the person that I appeared with last night, uh, Nigel Farage, as a Nazi or a fascist. What is the contempt that that shows for the victims of the real Nazis and the real fascists? That you, again, you elide the kind of language that somebody like Farage uses with the concentration camps and the gas chambers. This is what I find deep deeply shocking, scandalous and disgraceful. That we are using these, that we're eliding these slips of tongue with monstrous behaviours and acts. We've got to separate words from action. This is, you know, this is the classic position in America with, with the First Amendment and all the rest of it, that, that there is absolute clear distinction between words as words and words that invoke action. You know, the, the famous remark, uh, the one thing you can't say under freedom of speech is fire in a theater because it provokes behavior. But it's a really good point, David, that you've just made. And we were talking before how we've conflated words with violence and words with action. But words have power. And I would argue to you that what those words are being used, Nazi, racist, fascist, anti-vaxxer now, what they're doing is they're using words in order to shut down a discussion. Of course. In order to bludgeon somebody into not speaking their opinion. As indeed a previous authority that was very keen on words and policing words, the whole business of the medieval church and the use of heresy and heresy trials to shut people up. I mean, it's fascinating, again, putting the, all these things together. You remember the great fuss that's being made about the statue of Cecil Rhodes uh, on the front of Oriel College at Oxford. One of the other statues there that nobody actually complains about is a man called Archbishop Arundel, who is an early fellow of the college. He is the man who very nearly destroys the University of Oxford in about 1400 when he uses the, his power over the Church of England to issue uh, the Const Arundel's constitutions. And they literally shut down intellectual debate in England for a century. You, know, you, you nearly, as a Cambridge man, I used to be quite proud of being a Cambridge <laughs> man, uh, but a long time ago, well, 18 months ago, that was a vast, <laughs> vast, vast period that we were talking about before. And what Arundel did to the University of Oxford um, gave Cambridge its chance. Um, uh, does anybody notice this? Does anybody care about it? Because the universities, public life in general, our companies, have lost any notion of the value of freedom of speech. It seems to me to be an absolute value. If you want to look at what distinguishes us, what distinguishes the West from the rest, it is simply freedom. You know, it, as, as we're now discovering with China, you can actually have prosperity without freedom. 
Our only hope is that freedom, which will encourage the fermentation of ideas, the development of new technologies and so on. If I'm afraid you can have new ideas without freedom, we're lost. We're lost. I mean, it's an excellent point. The problem is as well, it's not just that we're losing freedom of speech we're also losing the ability to fight for it. People don't want to seem to fight for things There's anymore. cowardice. Cowardice. Again, at the moment, I really do think we are in a form of war. And some people can cope with war and some people can't. Some people can put their heads above the parapet and some people can't. Um, I refuse to bow the neck. I refuse to take the knee. I refuse to submit my mind to anybody. I was very fortunate. I come from a long line of dissenters. I mean, literal, religious, religious dissent. I also had a mother, um, despite all the problems that we later had over my sexuality, who gave me an iron self-confidence. And I've always taken a pride in that. Um, again, I... I was brought up in uh, a strange religious denomination, the Society of Friends, Quakers, where there was this, in theory, emphasis on plain speaking, plain unvarnished speech. But why do you think we're at war? Because that's a very bold statement. And also a lot of stupid people will, will, you know, people don't understand metaphors anymore, they choose not to. So what do you mean when you say we're at war? I think it is the first time Right, let's look at this um, and try and, again, pull back, use karma language, uh, non-metaphorical language. When I grew up, uh, the West was in a thing that was, well, I was born at the end of a real war. I was born at the, in 1945 at the very end of the First World War. My mother said that I was the only person in Kendall who actually slept through VE Day. Um, <laughs> as a contented baby. Then, of course, I grew up with the Cold War, uh, and which was also, of course, the great nuclear standoff. We knew there was a power, those of us who were at all intelligent, that wished to destroy us, that had opposed values to us, the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union is seen off, it collapses under its own contradictions, the absurdities of communism, you know, all of this stuff, oh, we've never tried communism. Has any doctrine ever been more rigorously pursued <laughs> at a greater cost of human life that dwarfs even the horrors of Nazism? Anyway, communism collapses, and then at which point there was this absurd man with the wondrous name Fukuyama came along and talked about the inevitable triumph of the West and liberal capitalism and whatever. But the seeds of something different had been sown. This was an internal enemy, a, an attack on the absolute fundamentals of Western society. We've really got to understand this. This is what, everybody jokes, or we sort of joke about woke because it is so preposterous. And it's so stupid. I mean, the idea that merely by saying, I want to be a woman, I am a woman. You know, this is, again, it's religious. Uh, Francis, it literally is religious. I mean, it is the equivalent of the priest saying, hoc es corpus. I mean, the word transubstantiation and the word transsexual, it's the same word. You're trying to change one thing into another merely by words. It's incantatory. It's magic. Now, this, this reversion, to religious primitivism, this giving language priority over fact, 
feeling priority over fact, is it's a deliberate reaction against modernity, against progress, against science, against everything that has made our lives better, longer, healthier, more comfortable than the lives of any human, freer than the lives of any human beings before. And so it is really an attempt at destroying everything. And it's purely destructive. At least communism thought it had an alternative. This has no alternative. It, I mean, it, 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 nobody has ever, really, these extraordinary people like, like Professor, whatever you call Bhopal, at uh, the college opposite, my, my former college at Cambridge, uh, 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 at Churchill College, uh, you know, that, that, that she wants to see the disappearance of whiteness. Now, if that's not an invocation to genocide, I really don't know what is. I mean, destroy white values. Now, so, you know, people on BBC television, mainstream television, the Orusogas of this world, want apparently to destroy whiteness. Now, what does that actually mean? It means, if you're being polite, they want to destroy a culture. Well, I think that's called cultural genocide. Mm. But how do you destroy a culture without destroying people unless you put them in a concentration camp? This, you know, see, nobody bothers to interrogate this language. Nobody puts them on the spot. All these big companies politely nod their head. The BBC nods its head. The Metropolitan Police nod its head. Even, for God's sake, Covent Garden is nodding its head. And so that's why I, you know, this is appeasement. This is the appeasement stage before war. I suppose I'm now identifying myself as a new intellectual, <laughs> with characteristic modesty as the new intellectual Churchill. I, I would push back on the uh, saying that they don't want anything. To me, these people are utopians, just in a way, as a more misguided people in, who are... Yeah, but what, yeah, what utopia... Right, okay, Francis, I'll challenge you. Describe the utopia they want. Okay, they want a utopia where we, you know, trans women are women, everybody lives free from the oppressive patriarchal structures. I'm not saying I believe in it, I'm just putting forward the argument. Where racism isn't a problem, where white supremacy isn't a problem, where people are elevated, etc. I, et I think I think more more succinctly it's they want the end of <laughs> discrimination. Yeah. They, they want they want uh for everyone to be equal and for there to be no discrimination. Now Look, we're more intelligent than that. Hey, we understand that those things aren't always possible, but that's what they want. No discrimination, everybody's equal. Well, I've got no problem with that. But they want discrimination. They want discrimination against whites. They want preferential treatment for people of different skin pigmentation. Stormzy has sponsored outrageously scholarships that came to their own given to people with black skins. Now, that, I mean, sorry, that is, that is what Martin Luther King fought against with his life. Isn't it? Moving on slightly, uh, one of the things you pioneered in many ways, we had Tim Stanley, the historian, in here mm -hmm. a few weeks ago, and he, he was talking about the, one of the transformations in our understanding of history that you were a huge leader in was to re-emphasize the role of the individual, the huge character, the huge personality. And we are obviously operating right now in extraordinary times, by any historical period, I think it's fair to say, with, with COVID, with lockdown, with all of the cultural stuff that's going on. Who are the personalities of today who are going to shape our historical perspective on, on this period of time, do you think? And, and what, what is the process that's happening now? Very difficult to say. I mean, the, there's been a kind of abdication, 
hasn't there? I mean, there are clearly big personalities, and the like Boris Johnson. But you remember that that wonderful um, uh, phrase of E. Cummings uh, that a, a, a politician is a cushion upon which everything is sat but a man, uh, and <laughs> the and and Boris takes whatever shape. I mean, he's it's it's complete shape shifting. It's it is a kind of in, inflatable, squidgy, funny cushion, a kind of perpetually shifting clown mask, plastic. Um. There are individuals. Are there? Does anybody? I'm falling silent because a handful of us, I think, have some sort of grasp. But we're we're mere intellectuals. We are um, little people on the margin of things. Is there any big figure? any statesman, any church leader. I mean, all the, all the things that you used to look to. I mean, look at Archbishop Welby. That absolutely vacuous windbag. His mouth stuffed with dreary business speak. I mean, can there be a clearer illustration of the, the complete loss of what was one of the intellectual centres intellectual and the word let's utter it spiritual centers than the performance that he put up at the beginning of lockdown at the the Easter uh, when as it were he celebrated the closure of churches by celebrating holy communion in front of a kitchen cabinet can there be a more appropriate metaphor for using that word that I shouldn't for loss of meaning, of seriousness. Um, because that's what's happened, isn't it? Um, maybe it's just that we're too comfortable. That, that if, you know, if you look at the seriousness of culture in the Soviet Union, where the, the persistence of serious classical music, the uh, seriousness with which even the communist state took scholarship and learning, mm. Um, those terrible pressures that were brought to bear by totalitarianism and our flaccid, formless, self-indulgent consumerism. I mean, I'm as guilty of it as anybody. I'm a creature of the 60s. Um, in many ways, although I had to fight in, intellectually, I had to fight um, you know, through scholarships and all the rest of it, one had extraordinarily easy life, and it was a life of perpetual opening opportunity. Um, there was the whole hedonism of, of the developing gay lifestyle. Uh, there was the pleasure of increasing prosperity. We've had very, very comfortable times. In other words, there is a terrible whiff, isn't there, of the end of Rome. Um, and the thing that's most striking, going to your point about the end of Rome, is how invisible the emperors are these these you know uh, the last emperor augustulus romulus the little the littlest augustus the littlest romulus these these and honorius who was without honor the the disappearance of serious thinkers the the, the lack of proper generals you know, it's awfully reminiscent well this is what worries <laughs> me and i was going to ask you david because you know, we, we, we've addressed your controversy. Do you think part of the reason that 
the caliber of thinkers, of politicians, of our leaders, our spiritual leaders, prevents people who are big characters, who speak honestly, sometimes wrongly, sometimes stupidly, as you said. Risk. They take, take risks. They take risks, but they're prepared to make a stand on principle, which is always going to alienate some people. Mm-hmm. They're prepared to speak their mind, which will always alienate some people. And they're prepared to take a risk, which doesn't always pay off, as we know, but sometimes pays off hugely. We don't want those people anymore as a society. I think we punish yeah, those people. Yeah, yeah. It's particularly, I was having a very interesting discussion at the Farage show last night with a couple of, of trainee teachers. And of course, that is what has exactly happened in teaching, in some ways for the best reasons. And when I was a schoolboy, you had these monstrous characters in teaching <laughs> and completely extraordinary people. <laughs> Clearly half of them, you know, a significant number of them were perverts. Um, and, and, and very often the best teachers again things truths that we cannot speak uh, very often the people in my experience of course because I'm much older uh, so many of mine were returnees from the war um, they uh, they'd been shot up they'd had bad wars they've had good wars they could talk about nothing else they couldn't mention it but they were extraordinary people um, and again teaching needs extraordinary people you look at the you look at the great writers of children's books every one of them is semi mad and some of them are wholly mad um, you know from 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 lewis carroll downwards and onwards um, but but they have this this magical quality that attracts and and holds attention now of course we've replaced charisma with celebrity um, which is an utterly empty thing. The, the, you know, the famous for being famous. The point that you made just there is so true when it comes to teaching, because when I was a teacher over 12 years, I saw it change. It become a tick box exercise. It became, did you meet this target, this target, this target? Whilst actually the people who were brilliant teachers, the mavericks, the free thinkers, mm. the people who could truly engage children and make them wonder and make them want to break or cross. out. Or cross. Or cross or angry. Or yes, in, but involve them. Involve them. Incite yeah. some kind of emotion yeah. in them, inspire them. They slowly drifted away or, or were, were rapidly to... Or rapidly forced out. Yes, because they didn't fit into a box. And that's what we want in our society. We want boxes. We want a box. You're a gay man, you're here. You're trans, you're here. You're straight, you're here. But life doesn't work like that. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But it is, we're in an age which is competent at everything and good at nothing. That, that apart, you know, apart from technological fiddles, you, you look at now in terms of, say, the performing arts, we are wonderful. There have never been more competent performances. Mm. Who is actually creating anything? Look at the mountainous heap of rubbish of modern art. And it's, it, it, it is absurd. It is simply absurd. Propelled, of course, by people with too much money who treat it simply as an investment opportunity or something to decorate their overpriced loft or bank atrium. Um, so we're in a, we're in a, never has the word creativity been used more often with less actually being created. Uh, and again, th- there are all sorts of things which are really very uncomfortable to say. We, generally speaking, I think, agree that our politicians are an, 
to put it as mildly, I know we're now supposed to be nice about politicians <laughs> following recent events, but they are a pretty uninspiring lot. I mean, when you know, your greatest achievement um, is to further the affairs of your constituency, well, that's fine. But you know, getting the streets cleaned really isn't the most noble of human acts. And um, there's been... Why has that happened? Well, it is, of course, the equivalent of what's happened to teaching. It's the creation of the professional politician class in which these people are paid and salaried. Uh, and why has that happened? Because our old governing class has died and been deliberately wiped out. Now, again, there was a huge amount wrong with the gentry and the nobility, but equally, there were these... Ex you look at... Churchill makes this point brilliantly because, of course, he was one of these people. He points out that we were better governed when our elite was drawn from 600 families than we are when it's drawn from 50 million. Well, talk about these, controversial points. The, the, but, but he's, he's absent. If you look at the calibre of our 18th and 19th century politicians. If you look at the caliber of our 19th century prime ministers, if you look at figures like Peel and Gladstone and Disraeli, they are staggering. Their sheer, their sheer intellectual power, let alone anything else, the, 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 not Disraeli, but, but, but Gladstone and Peel, you know, they are the absolute stars of Oxford. They're highly competent at maths. They're brilliant classicists. Um, they, they, they're sheer, as well as rhetorical power, imagination. You look at what those two men do and you compare it with any politician of the later 20th century and they, they, they shrivel to a pea. David, there's another thing that you bring up since we're talking about controversial subjects, and this is something I think is very important. I to told talk you about. I wouldn't. <laughs> you did. I didn't expect you to, <laughs> to, to be faithful to that, to be honest. But look... We talk about politicians, and you, you mentioned, the, the, you allude to, rather, the murder of Sir David Amos very recently. And one of the things I find absolutely mind-boggling, and perhaps you can help me with this, is he was murdered, as far, to, to all intents and purposes, as far as we know, by an Islamist extremist who was radicalised online. And or by his father. Uh, well, I, I was. I mean, if I mean, if you actually look at the evidence of the kind of things that his father was saying, this was clearly a family that was fully Islamic. Full, you know. Well, you yeah. come to the point to the very point that I was trying to make, and I'm not aware of the, the situation with the father. Perhaps you're better. It's been informed. widely reported. Okay, so in response to that, our politicians' reaction was to talk about online anonymity, deranged, and I. I think there's a very nuanced conversation to be had about Islam. We've had former Al-Qaeda uh, agents turned down my six informers on the show. I understand the, the complexities of that issue. Uh, it's not as simple as some people like to make it out to be. But on the other hand, I, I mean, I just, I think it needs to be dealt with and addressed. And yet the response from our political class is to ignore it and to talk about something else. I don't understand what's happening there, do you? It is an elephant in an Arab headdress, isn't it? Um, in the room. Um, I do understand. It's t 
too dangerous. They will not grasp it. I mean, we talk about no serious, this is the problem, we don't talk about any serious issues in politics. We've been through lockdown without actually raising the fundamental question. What is the weight between saving so many lives of primarily people even older than I am? Again, shutting down an entire economy and incurring debts on the same scale as the Second World War. And killing people mm. as well. And, yeah. and, 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 of course, by gross mismanagement, killing people in care homes. Um, but none of these debates have been had at all. What is the cost of saving a life in terms of the life of other people who live? How much do you spend? I mean, the, apparently, the, the average spend on, uh, as it were, saving a life in COVID is three times what the national health will normally spend. It's called a quality, um, a quality assessed year of life. So everywhere, there's a refusal to debate serious things. It's just, you know, it's too difficult. It goes into that too difficult box. Islamism is clearly a fundamental issue, but it is part of a much bigger box of issues, mm. which is how do we live in a complex uh, society? I don't want to use it. Well, I have to use the word multicultural in which there are lots of different cultures residing together. It seems to me there are two ways you can try to do it. One is what you were talking about with this vision of the woke, mm. in which all cultures of equal values and we are fundamentally atomized into different groups, in which mysteriously, although they all hate each other, <laughs> uh, they will survive perfectly happily alongside each other with, of course, no police force, um, because the police are wicked. So, so all of these rival, mutually hating groups will somehow, in this wonderful nirvana, learn to live happily with each other. Right. That's the woke vision, which is why I'm sorry I said I didn't think it was very serious. Now, I've got a different vision, which is, and oddly enough, this is what I was talking about in the Darren Grimes. I don't know whether you watched the whole mm, yeah, the Darren Grimes video. This is what I was primarily talking about. I was talking about this thing called biculturalism. And this is what I think the solution to our society is. And I learned about it uh, because I do occasionally listen to people uh, as well as talking at them. And I learned about it through my friendship with somebody who was very, very different from me, Hugo Grin on The Moral Maze back in the late 1990s. And Hugo and I were complete polar opposites. You know, he was a liberal Jew. Uh, I, I was then a sort of radical gay libertarian, though I've, I've softened, I've changed. I've become a radical gay Tory. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, Hugo and I had this very sparry relationship in which there was a wonderful exchange between us when Hugo was and David, you're not half as nasty as you seem, to which my response was, Hugo, darling, you're not half as nice either. But, <laughs> but, but Hugo had the courage to take myself and my late partner, James, into his home for a Passover. And it was one of the most memorable experiences I've ever had. I had not understood Judaism at all in terms of the, in, in a sense, the synagogue is dispensable. The central rituals are within the family and within the home, which, of course, is why it survived 2,000 years of diaspora and persecution. But what was also striking to me was this man who, in to all intents and purposes, was a very important figure, as British as they come in British public life, becoming somebody completely different. A Jew invoking the rituals of two and a half thousand years. But he was perfectly at home in both of those worlds. And if we look at all our successful immigrant groups, that's what they do. 
the, you know, the Hindus, the Sikhs, whatever, uh, the Chinese do this with astonishing facility. You look at the members of the cabinet, um, uh, of this astonishingly multicultural cabinet. Again, I had a, a fascinating insight um, a couple of years ago uh, when I was going around taking various tours and we were to a particular stately home uh, and I'd arrived early and it turned out to be a very good thing because there'd been a wedding party so there's still lots of champagne lying around <laughs> and I quaffed it, quaffed it down and got talking with the staff which is always an interesting experience and it had been a marriage between an, an English guy and, and, and a Hindu girl. Mm. They had gone through, because they were clearly very comfortably off in this grand state, mm. they'd gone through no fewer than three ceremonies. You'd had a registry office wedding, you'd had a sort of Christian wedding, and you'd had a Hindu wedding. Mm. And this was a wonderful opportunity because you had complete changes of clothes for all of them. Um, and, you know, the, the, the bride wore white and the groom wore tails and, and, and then for the Hindu wedding, you know, they, were, they were swathed in silks and saris and whatever. And this complete cultural shift. But, 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 one of those cultures has to have primacy. It's the native one. It is, it is the values of Britain. You have to be and it's the only way we can operate is if, and this is where, again, my profound disagreement with BLM, with, with Bhopal and whatever, there has to be that overarching culture of the liberal West. And you can engage, you can fit, you can swap. You look again, you know, historically, um, you know, my... <coughs> I, I happen to be a, a, a ra, 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 rather a, a, a passionate of philo-Semitic to, 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 to word. You look at the achievement of families like the Rothschilds, completely British and yet completely Jewish. This double face. And this seems to me to be exactly what we should be aiming for. And why is it that that is such a controversial point? Because you wouldn't be allowed. If you talked about that on Newsnight, I'd give it about 23 seconds quite. before someone's tried to shout you down. It's quite extraordinary because, again, there is the notion that the West is somehow fundamentally wicked. Um, and, and, of course, it is really that there are only two groups that don't want to fit in that pattern. And we both know what they are. And overwhelmingly, it seems to me, our society, without actually articulating that or without having that as a principle, has this is what has actually happened. Except, of course, that the official line is a very different one. But if you look at what the behavioural patterns have become, they have become, in all successful immigrant groups, they've become this biculturalism. Mm. Well, look, I, I've been talking about this for a long time as a first-generation immigrant. I talk about it in my book, as, by the way, I talk about the slavery points that you made earlier, that I think uh, the only way a multi-ethnic society can work is if it rejects the idea of multiculturalism and, and encourages people to adopt the primary culture of that society first, while also retaining the valuable things about the culture from, from which they come. And there's no... Con the point is there is no contradiction. No. Unless, of course, you have... Again, now let's be frank and return to the, the problem with Islam. The great problem with Islam, of course, is that uh, 
Jews, Islam, I have a problem with everybody, don't I? That makes, that makes, <laughs> that makes life much simpler. So everybody can cancel me. That's, that's really much better. Um, the problem with Islam is, of course, that unlike Christianity, it does not make a distinction between church and state. That you know, there is no equivalent to that, that extraordinary moment in the Bible, you know, where where um, it's very, very, very striking. And again, looking at many modern Christian attitudes, um, one of Jesus's disciples says to him, you know, come on, we, we shouldn't be paying taxes to the Romans, should we? Um, and Jesus says, right, hand me a coin. They hand him a coin. He asks, whose head is on this coin? Of course, it's Caesar. And the wonderful remark, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God. Unfortunately, Islam is a complete doctrine of life in which politics and religion, ideally, that's what the caliphate is about, are one and the same thing. Now, that raises absolutely fundamental problems. And, and it raises, again, you know, the campaign for Sharia law is, is unthinkable in a liberal democracy, one simply cannot have it. You, can, you could allow it, um, as for example with Jewish law, you can allow it in certain forms of private relations, but even then, you know, because of the very different attitudes to say divorce, you come up against a huge problem. In every state, there has to be a final, I think, set of values and a final legal principle. One cannot have rival ones. Otherwise, you know, this, is, this is why there was a reformation. This is why there was the first Brexit against Rome. Um, uh, fundamentally, there has to be that bedrock, that, that, that generally accepted. But you see, we stop teaching this. We, it is no longer fashionable or respectable to do so. Our national broadcaster actively campaigns against it. Isn't also the problem, David, of taboo subjects? We had Ed yes. West on the show a few weeks ago, and he made one of the most pertinent points I've ever heard, where he said the problem with having taboo subjects is it means you never solve problems. Of course. Because they you fester. They yeah, fester. Because you don't talk honestly about What them. I was talking about, I've been making exactly the same point. We were talking again about how much money do you spend on saving a life. The whole absurd distortion of the national health in which you spend, I think it's, if you look at how much money we spend over a person's lifetime, you spend something like 70% of it in the last year and a half of their lives. To what purpose? To what purpose? The absurdity of somebody is suing the NHS now. Okay, uh, we've both agreed that the, uh, the the way in which care homes were handled and in a sense the almost, to use the word deliberate, is wrong, but the reckless permitting the spread of COVID within them. But to pretend, as this person is doing, that the death of a 90-year-old man with Alzheimer's from COVID is a major tragedy. Please, please. Do you think what this is really please. about? But, but this, mean, this means that we've lost any sense that, sorry, lives do have different value. Well, this is what I was going to say. Do you think we've lost any ability to have... A, our feelings have become so important. Mm. And 
Of course, if it's your parent, it doesn't matter if they're 190 no, and they've got Alzheimer's. It's Except a... that you do slightly raise the question why you've put them in a care home. <laughs> I'm sorry, isn't, it, isn't a care home one of these <laughs> wonderful words that it's Orwellian, it means the opposite. It's a careless home. It's an uncaring home. It's I can't be bothered to care home or I'm finding it too difficult to care home. Just look at what you can do with the playing of that word. That is what it's really, but dare we, dare, well, we dare say it. And it's high time we did. Uh, because this is the reason the NHS is costing more and more and more. Again, the saving of lives of brain-dead children. It, it's preposterous. Because, it, okay, the parents want it, but if that child survives in that condition, it then becomes a vast cost upon the state, upon the rest of us. You see, it, it's the problem that, that as a reaction to the horrors of eugenics and Nazism mm. and whatever, we have, it's feeling, but it's false feeling. It's sentiment. It's sentimentality. We are driven by sentimentality, which is false, dramatic, shallow, displayed feeling. Feelings not in the heart, but feelings worn on the sleeve. But we live in a society that incentivizes course, people to behave like course, that. Of course, of course it does. Of course it does. Um, and, and it is disastrous. Um, and we have politicians who are too frit to, to cite one who wasn't, um, uh, politicians who are too frit to tackle it. And it's not only that, but to me as well, it's the fact that we don't have religion anymore in this country. Oh, yes, we do. Um, uh, we, oh, yes, we do. God may have died, but you remember the wonderful remark of G.K. Chesterton that when people no longer worship God, they don't worship nothing, they worship anything. And everything that's going on now with woke is a form of perverted religion. I mean, the very notion of, of that this radical equality is the Magnificat, you know. Um, he has exalted them of low degree. He's taken down the mighty from the seats, people big, fat, prosperous, you know, overpaid white men like me, and exalted them of low degree. You know, Professor Bhopal, who happens to come from the Brahmin family, and suddenly, you know, in, in her anxiety to point out the moat in the eye of the West, ignores the beam of caste in India from which she benefited from being high caste. And it just... There's, a, there's, a, there's an extraordinary religiousness of all of this. Mm. The, what I experienced was the equivalent, at least in the, in the days of the church, you had a trial before you were condemned <laughs> as a heretic. I mean, this is, this is just a witch lynching. You know, mm. you're, you're hurried to the stake and burned as quickly as possible. Um, but it's religious. And this is why, again, why we've ceased to be able to argue with people. And the whole problem with woke is because its statements are so absurd, like I can become a woman merely because I say so, and you cannot, they cannot argue about them. They become articles of faith. When uh, this extraordinary case at the University of, of, of Sussex at Brighton of Professor Kathleen Stock, um, when she says, you know, I don't actually believe that you do become a woman, the, what do the trans say? Well, they actually, or the radical trans, what they say is, we cannot be reasoned out of existence. <laughs> well, nobody, nobody, is nobody is challenging their existence. What we're challenging is their right to force us to tell a lie. 
which is to say that a biological man can become a biological woman. You can't, or to even eliminate the notion of biology. But this is an act of religious faith. This is like saying you believe the bread and the wine is the blood and the flesh and blood of Christ. You're asking us to believe in miracles. Um, I mean, if you think about it, woke is the miracle. Again, the society, right, come on, I'm really running with the idea. <laughs> it's the, the society that we have in which wondrously uh, Palestinians and Jews are going to be completely happy uh, <laughs> in this, in this marvellous utopia. It's the lion lying down with the lamb. I mean, just think about it. All of, all of those religious ideas are now translated and vulgarised into the real world. Um, but of course, it's an absurdity because the lion could lie down with the lamb only at the second coming of Christ. What these people are trying to do is to bring about the second coming here and now. Uh, America, of course, you see, has had this right through the 19th century. There were the great awakenings, the great surges, because it's all very puritanical as well. Uh, clearly, the woke believe they're a new elect and you know, certain to go to paradise, and the rest of us are wicked and corrupt and, and fundamentally, you know, uh, we should go to hell, and before we do, our life should be made hell here on earth for us. Um, but the, the phrase that is, is marvellous is, um, I think I've coined it, but a friend of mine actually said somebody got there before it. We should be talking about the Great Awakening. It's, it's a manifestly religious movement. Um, I'm afraid secularised religion like that is the most dangerous form of human behaviour. It has got none of the restraints of real religion. It's got none of the restraints of the seriousness of theology. It is the literally the blood and guts of the thing, driven by the meanest, the most dangerous and the most unsuppressed of emotions. You see, it's a new romantic movement. Mm. Um, uh, it's, it, it, in one sense, what are, what are we really saying? This is a vast reaction to the technological world that we live in. The world of, because remember, in many ways, technology to an ordinary person seems like a miracle. I don't know about you, I really do think when I look at a mobile phone, there's something almost miraculous about mm. it. I have absolutely no comprehension of what is going on inside this thing. And it seems to be able to do what once upon a time took an entire room full of secretaries, assistants and everything else. So, but equally, of course, it's an object. It's a thing. Um, it's polished, smooth, profoundly unhuman, as so much of our society is. And I think what we're doing, it's as with the 18th century, as with that you know, period of elegance, formality, brilliance and whatever, there's this violent reaction. The age of reason is followed by the age of unreason, of romanticism, of passion, of Byron, of Beethoven, um, of Wagner, you know, great lushing waves of... Of, of passion, sex, emotion, violence, war. And we're seeing this in almost, I think, a parody form. It, um, the, of course, the woke don't know anything or understand anything, but they're like an extreme form of Rousseau, you know, who on the one hand proclaims that he loves all mankind, and on the other hand puts his own children in an orphanage. Could you, but with the point of religion, the point that I was trying to make, and that point is incredibly valid that you just made, but one of the things religion does that the woke religion does not do 
is it gives us comfort with the knowledge of our own mortality. Mm -hmm. And to me, a lot and our of own and our own flaws, flaws all but, of those things. But yeah. particularly mortality, because we have we seem on the surface to have solved everything in our society apart from death. We haven't seemed to solve that. And you look at everything that is happening now, it's because we can't accept we're going to die. We know that we're going to die, that there's an end. Therefore, I don't want to feel discomfort. Therefore, I don't want to be upset. Therefore, I don't want to have confrontations because I've got a limited amount of time here and I'm going to be pleasure-seeking to the max, which is why I don't want to get married. It's why I don't want to have kids. It's all about me, me, me. But the problem is with our society, if you just have purely selfish individuals operating in that manner, you're never going to have social cohesion. Of course not. Um, I mean, I think you've confused two things. Mm. Uh, I think that, that, that the question of refusing to accept death is utterly fundamental. The, uh, it means that, that there's a, a wonderful joke. I mean, you're, you're being the serious one. I'll tell the jokes. We'll, we'll reverse <laughs> roles. There's, there's, there's a marvellous remark. Destroyed but very softly. There's, yeah. a, there, there's a marvellous remark about Americans who are determined to die in a state of perfect health. Um, and you know, there is that refusal to accept that we are mortal and we are frail and we will die, which is why this absurd attempts at prolonging lives that frankly are not worth prolonging, this refusal to accept that with the state of modern medicine, some form of euthanasia, if people want it, is the sensible way to handle all of this. Again, the absolute refusal to have a serious, serious and proper debate uh, on this subject. The other one, though, I think is, is different. I mean, it is the, the... I'm not quite sure why you think that an acceptance of death and values other than pure solipsistic selfishness and pure narcissism are directly connected. I don't think they are. I mean, I think that it's possible to um, uh, have uh, perfectly sensible attitudes in these areas. But, and I think it's, it's fundamentally the narcissism and the solipsism of our society. Um, but you see, I think there's a reason for this. None of this is accidental. Sorry, this is, this is, I'm not a determinist historian, but none of this is accidental. Liberalism, from which I've benefited, we all have, one way or another. Obviously, I, as a gay man, benefited enormously from the transformation of, 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 of attitudes. So in one sense, I'm biting a hand that fed me and indulged me. But liberalism has no end. There is no reason for it to stop. So the liberalism of the 18th century ended in the horrors of the terror of the French Revolution. The, the reason of the 18th century turned into a parody of itself with the, you know, the goddess of reason as a half-draped actress of the Comédie Française um, on, the, on the desecrated high altar of Notre Dame, this, this awful parody. In the same way, the liberalism of the 60s ends in woke. It, what, if you look at what's happened within gay lib, I was right at the beginning of it. You know, uh, I, was, I was, dare I say it, even occasionally going on a demonstration of <laughs> me uh, at a time when you know, the Ian McKellens of this world were, were carefully parading their heterosexuality because it might have damaged their stage careers. Um, but if you look at that progression, if you look at you know, gay freedom, lesbian freedom, well then in one sense you can see then, okay, bisexual freedom, well then the next stage is trans freedom. Um, but trans freedom, if it then becomes we've got to believe you. When we were talking about 
liberalization for gays, lesbians, bisexuals, we're saying, please can we be recognized for what we are and not penalized for it. Trans is something completely different. It's saying, please can we be recognized for what we want to be, for what we imagine we are. And by the way, if you don't believe in me, I'm going to destroy your career. Now that seems to me, that's the equivalent of the terror of the French Revolution. It's when freedom turns against itself and consumes itself. You know, it's the phrase, revolutions always end by consuming themselves. They're self-consuming processes. Well, I'm afraid the same is true of liberalism. And it's strikingly, it's Disraeli, I think the greatest practical political thinker of the 19th century in the same way that Churchill was the greatest practical political thinker of the 20th century. Disraeli recognises that liberalism is the enemy and that the, the, this deracinated liberalism, uh, this thing that dissolves everything. The prime example in our recent history is the utter catastrophe of the Blair government. Everything that it touched turned to pitch, be it you know, Scotland, be it the Supreme Court, be it whatever. Northern Ireland, don't no. Well, Northern Kosovo? Ireland... No, pardon? Kosovo? Kosovo? Kosovo, of course, is simply an EU colony. But an EU... I mean, what's happened in the Balkans is an absurdity. Um, uh, the, I, I do think, in one, in one sense, I know this sounds appalling, the, historically, the way disputes like, um, like, like the Balkans are settled, I'm afraid, is by war. That is how the frontiers of, you, you know this, that's how the frontiers of Eastern Europe were settled at the end of the First World War, with huge movements of population, painful and horrible. But that's how the problem is really solved, not creating this enforced patchwork mm. of unsustainable statelets. Northern Ireland, for heaven's sake, better, I suppose, than the terror, but pretending that the terrorists won, which is what I'm afraid the settlement is based upon and with the imminent prospect of a Sinn Féin government in Ireland. I suspect it will turn out to have been just as bad, bad an idea there. Right. But We've opened enough cans of worms <laughs> yes, for yes. one day. David, before we wrap up, let me ask you about one other subject which you've, you've referred to. I've so, got one last question okay, as well, but you well, go. I'll ask my final question. <laughs> yeah. uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, not, not, not the modern situation and what happened here and who said this and whatever, but... A historical perspective. I, based on what I know, and you know, my historical knowledge is obviously limited. Human beings have not dealt with pandemics in this way before. Never. But human beings have dealt with many pandemics before. Mm-hmm. So, what do what what do we need to know about periods? of this kind in, in human history and what are we likely to have to watch out for and expect with this? Well, I think, in a sense, the way we dealt with COVID was a direct reflection of everything we've been talking about now. Mm. Uh, that We thought, in a sense, that um, it was the notion that quite a lot of people would die was something so monstrous that we decided to shut down society. Now, no... This is the first time that a plague, it's a very, very minor plague, by the way, in comparison with the great plagues of the, uh, say, the, um, the 14th and 15th century, you know, the, the great, the, the, the Black Death eliminates probably two-thirds of 
effective, this cumulative effect between half and two-thirds of the population. That's real. Um, this was a, a relatively minor blip. But for the first time, we decided to inflict more damage on ourselves in trying to control the plague than the plague would have done if it had been given, as it were, the, the, the vexed question of herd immunity. Now, you could argue this is because we've developed proper attitudes to the sacredness of life and the sanctity of life, that we no longer take the indifference, uh, the, the relatively indifferent view. I mean, our ancestors had to take a relatively indifferent view, which is not to say that things like quarantine and all the rest of it were not very frequently applied. I think the problem is we also had a false model. We got a Chinese virus and we decided to have a Chinese solution. I mean, the lockdown is totally antithetical. This is the point Jonathan Sumption has been making repeatedly. It is absolutely antithetical to British values, to Western liberal values. And it is a testimony to the fundamental collapse of those values that it's been allowed to happen. David, let me interrupt you there because so, you're making such a good point and I want to just interject this because I think this is so important and you've allowed me to see something I've been rummaging around in my head for a while. I think what you're really saying, correct me if I'm wrong, is that we've forgotten that freedom comes with cost. Absolutely. Freedom in, has a indeed, price. Uh, freedom has a price in exactly the same way that trying, to, that trying to prevent death has a price. And because we've got into the habit of not having serious conversations, we've not debated the balance between those two. We've also been sold completely bad science. The whole science of lockdown, Professor Lockdown, uh, Neil Ferguson, is a fraud. Let's just use this word, this, this absolute word. He, got, he used the same mathematical models for BSE. He used the same mathematical models for foot and mouth disease. And he was out by factors of scores. Huge, huge. Why this man? is allowed to, to hold forth is beyond me. It's, it's, bad. it's bad applied maths. It's not medical science. But there is a science, and the science is that of vaccination. Now, this will surprise you. I am absolutely in favour of compulsory vaccination. Uh, if you actually look at one of the, the great reasons that we've eliminated infectious illness, it is vaccination. Again, the great British discovery, uh, Jana's um, discovery of vaccination, uh, of cowpox, which eliminated smallpox. And effectively, it is compulsory. Um, in the same way, as a child, I desperately liked the fact that there wasn't a salt vaccine for polio. I, because I never do things by halves, I not only had club feet, I caught polio. Um, and from that point onwards, every child was vaccinated against polio. You weren't asked, you were in a queue, and you had little needles pushed in your arm, and we've eliminated illness after illness. We also used to have because of the omnipresence of infectious illness, we actually had, uh, we had isolation hospitals. We had fundamental powers of medical officers of health, all of which we threw away in the 1960s. So there is a way of dealing with this, and it is vaccination. And there's no libertarian argument against it. What I, about bodily autonomy? Pardon? Bodily autonomy. Uh, well, you, the state, has no right to inject something into my body without my consent. Uh, I'm sorry. Um, you're a member of a society in which if you go around unvaccinated, you're likely to infect others. Well, um, the evidence isn't very strong on that, David. Um, the idea I'm, that vaccination I'm, prevents infection is very, very, very limited. 
What? Is very limited. Well, it certainly limits the consequences of it. No, and no, yeah, right. No, you, you, it's, it's, so the vaccine protects you against serious illness and it protects you against going to hospital and it protects you against dying. It does not have any strong evidence to suggest that it prevents me from catching it from you because you're vaccinated or no, vice no, versa. No, but that's not, that's, not, that's not the issue. It limits the consequences of infectious disease. This is why, this is why small, sorry, sorry, if you were right and I was wrong, we'd still have smallpox. Um, that, that it is precisely the universality of vaccination against smallpox that effectively eradicated it because there was nobody left getting smallpox and therefore nobody caught it, even though not everybody is vaccinated against it now. Um, and, and sorry, this really does seem to me to be an... There is a science. There's a real medical science. But one of the problems is, again, you know, we've had... Public debate is so slovenly. Um, the government used the science as a get-out card, as, a, as, as an arse-covering card. And, of course, the scientists the scientists, some of whom were. I had no idea we had so many, so many serious experts in, in epidemiologists. I had no idea the country was crawling with people who understood everything about virology. Amazing. Every 10th rate academic in every 8th rate university popped up on SAGE. Um, and, and the behaviour of SAGE, everybody going Shocking. You're there to give advice to a government. The moment you've given the advice, what do you do? You then all jostle and struggle to get on question time or to appear on the news and to become little stars. Now, that's not, that really isn't what you should be doing. So I'm afraid the whole thing has shown, our reaction to COVID has shown, I think, the extent to which we are in a fully decadent society. It's shown an absolute refusal to ask big questions. It has shown vanity, uh, the vanity of the scientist, um, uh, me, me, me. Uh, it has shown the... Uh, absolute uh, incomprehension of how medicine actually works. Thank you for pointing at me, the, and the, No, 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 I don't, no, David, I'm sorry. I don't accept this. Okay, it's that's a, fine. Well, then, then, right, let us give an example to everybody and we'll agree to disagree. Um, um, but, but, and the complete ignoring of history as to how these things have been dealt with before. Um, on the other hand, it's shown something else, which is the wonders of private enterprise. That is to say, the discovery of the vaccine, the extraordinary uh, rapid development of its manufacture. Um, isn't it very striking? Everywhere you look, the state has performed badly. Do you remember testing? Compare the testing regime you done through the NHS and, and, and through Public Health England and compare, on the other hand, the private enterprise development of the vaccine. Look again. Do you remember right at the beginning, people were going on about, oh, we need rationing. We need a national food service. And how quickly the supermarkets sorted it out. Have you noticed how quickly even the petrol shortage has gone away? Imagine if we'd had a state supply of, of petroleum uh, and state-run uh, um, petrol stations and state-run... We'd solve the climate crisis. <laughs> Certainly. There wouldn't be a single... Wouldn't be a single moving car or lorry in Britain. But isn't it? I'm being really serious. Um, and at the same time, we are constantly piling more and more onto the state as the state becomes more and more incompetent as its reach extends. Well, look, I grew up in the Soviet Union. You don't so, need to convince so us of this. But unfortunately, we, sorry, 
the people in Britain didn't, Boris Johnson did not grow up in the Soviet Union. Uh, and we're now seeing this extraordinary paradox of, of, a, of a, a so-called conservative government that seems to think that the state is the solution. When, when it's faced with the manifest incompetence of everything, from DVLC to, uh, to, to the inland revenue, to, to the, the one thing that is still preserves some sort of sense is, is the treasury, but that's about all. There was a moment earlier on in the interview, which I think when we touched on art, because to me, art is very, very important. Art reflects the culture, that reflects the society. And we were talking- As it does so brilliantly. Yeah. Look, look, at, look at the Turner Prize. Yeah. Um, look, 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 look at Jeff Koons. Yeah. Look, you know, this is the art of decadence and absurdity. But it, look, look at look at the whatever it is. Is an ice cream cone with a cherry on it shoved on a pedestal in Trafalgar Square? Yes, absolutely. But what it shows is that we have a dearth of ideas. There's no fresh ideas. There's yeah. no I new mean, way of looking at it. It's Duchamp. The whole, the whole thing is, is that funny notion of Marcel Duchamp uh, back in, at the end of the First World War, you know, that anything is an object. Do you know what? It's exactly the same as trans. What Duchamp said was, a urinal is a work of art because I say it is. It's exactly, you see what I mean? It's exactly the same phenomenon. It's the phenomenon of words, the whole business of conceptual art. It's the phenomenon of the word actually given priority over the craft, the act of painting, carving, or whatever it is. And of course, the solipsism and the, you know, just the focus in on the self of because I say it is, it is. Or the fundamental, it's a miracle um, because. I say it's a work of art. I mean, the, the one Turner ex exhibit was turning on and off a light switch. Ha! No, quite seriously. <laughs> and and you know, this thing it receives enormous amounts of public money. The Arts Council is fixated on this rubbish. And it is rubbish. And it's his complete emperor's new clothes. And no, and it's, but what is most astonishing about it, Francis, you put your finger on it, it's old emperor. If, the, you're, if you can have an old, presumably it means he's got a withered willy, you know, it's, it's <laughs> kind of old emperor's new clothes. Because these are ideas that have been knocking around since the beginning of the 20th century. They're 100 years old. It's 100 years of, of waving two fingers and calling it art. David, I said I had the last question, but I've got one more. <laughs> and it's personal to you because I want to finish where we started the interview, which is what do we do with people like you in society? People who are talented and brilliant, but also take risks and make mistakes and sometimes say things that are insensitive and some people find oh, always insensitive, yeah. <laughs> what do, I mean, we, we talked about the reaction to your situation, which I agree with you was excessive. But what should we do when someone says the wrong thing? I think we've forgotten the answer to that question. I don't know what the answer is. What should we do when you, people you, say you could, something offensive? You, well, uh, the sensible thing is usually to say, silly old fool, ignore him, um, if, which is what one tended to do. Um, the, the other is perhaps to listen, because, of course, you see, again, I've been comparing myself to Churchill. With typical, <laughs> with, with typical modesty, I will now compare myself to the prophet. People like me are the equivalent of the prophets of the Old Testament. We are the Nais or the Cassandras. And again, you remember what happened to Cassandra. Mm. She mm -hmm. was ignored. Mm. She told the truth, but she was ignored, which seems to me to be a pretty, uh, pretty accurate uh, description. And um, what should we do? Well, I suppose you should really listen to things that challenge you. 
But it's very difficult to pers persuade people to do that. You have to sugar pill. So it needs people who are more tactful than I am um, and uh, probably subtler. Um, and uh, more insinuating, more snake-like, um, <laughs> uh, to carry these things through. But every to, now to be completely serious, societies depend on dissent. You know this from the Soviet Union. Societies that try to suppress dissent die. It is very simple. I come from, a, I'm talking about it, I come from long generations of religious dissenters, of people who said no. I do not accept what is publicly enforced belief. I think it is wrong. And if you actually look at, in every society, it is these marginal groups that are high creatives. As I said, we, we never has the word creativity been so misused. If you look at the record of Quakers in England, if you look at the record of Jews if you in, in Russia, if you look at the record of old believers, wherever you, in, you know, the, the, the immigrants in Britain, uh, like, like, like the, the religious refugees from France, the Huguenots or whatever. The, Louis XIV destroyed France when he drove out the Huguenots. They were the most intelligent, the most creative, the most brilliant craftsmen. The reason that in England you suddenly get this extraordinary development of everything from furniture to silversmith work in the, in the early 18th century is because Louis XIV, whom Churchill uses as the model for Hitler, um, drove out the uh, drove out the Huguenot, the, the the Protestants from France. They were the greatest. Of, you look at their names, echoing through the manufacture of silver in 18th century England. They're French, French, French. They're Huguenot, but they're marginal. They're dissenters, and a society that loses sight of this is finished. We used to have the reputation of English eccentricity. Mm. It's going. Um, again, it's one of the things, I know this sounds a real paradox, it's one of the things I worry about uh, insofar as I, I don't really worry about it, but, but if, I, if, if I'm put on a programme like this and asked to find something to worry about, <laughs> um, it is about gay, about gay life. We used to be dissenters. Now, of course, you know, it's practically compulsory, as, as one, of, one, of, <laughs> one of the more discontented members of my department at LSE once remarked. Um, um, and, and as it mainstreams, and you know what happens now generally I think when you come out um, uh, one of my younger gay friends said you know it was absolutely terrible what happened just awful I said oh poor lad what was it he said well my mother said you know what's your boyfriend called am I going to like him when's the wedding what am I, you know, for heaven's sake, here you are making this heart-rending confession and it's just treated as an excuse for a new pair of shoes. Um, and <laughs> if you, again, if you look at the, the gay world that produced people like Oscar Wilde, that's not going to happen again. Stephen Fry is a very bargain basement version of Oscar Wilde. Um, I suppose I'm now arguing for persecution. <laughs> <laughs> but the point again about the Soviet Union, Dissent is very important, David, yeah. Yeah. And, and it's an unhealthy society that cannot process dissent. It's like a human being. A human being that can't handle disagreement is an unhealthy human Absolutely. being. And society is the same, which is why it has been a pleasure to have you back. Thank you. We're going to have some questions for our local supporters, uh, but the last question we always ask is, what's the one thing we're not talking about, but we really should be? Having fun. And um, we've made it all so serious. I mean, one of the things that sustained me in all of this is I've been, I've been attacking 
simple pleasure-seeking, but one needs to enjoy life. I love doing this. I love debate. I love the pleasures of food and drink. Uh, in the days when they're more readily available, I love the pleasures of sex. Um, <laughs> and it, it, but it's not that destructive hedonism, that just complete repetition. It is the enjoyment, the savouring. It, I, you know, good food, drink, um, decent furniture, things that are beautiful. The, the you were talking about art, all of that. These are the things that, again, using very unfashionable language, elevate us, take us beyond ourselves, but can also unite us with other people. What a wonderful note to end on. And David, you've also got a YouTube channel that you're starting. Why don't you tell the viewers about that and the listeners? Uh, well, it's going to be called, very surprisingly, David Starkey Talks. When is he ever? <laughs> my mother had a wonderful line on that. Your tongue will be the ruin of you, she said. And she was, of course, absolutely right and absolutely wrong. It's mm -hmm. been the making and the unmaking. I'm going to be talking primarily about history. Um, I'm going to try and do it very free form. It's not going to be like a television documentary. Those days were a bit past, I think. Uh, it's going to be the equivalent of, uh, I've always enjoyed lecturing. Um, uh, we mentioned beforehand, and I think I say this safely now, I've always regarded public speaking as the best form of oral sex. So <laughs> what, what, what this is going to be, it's the equivalent of me doing an extemporary lecture, which was the thing I most enjoyed when I was an, an academic. And I'm going to be doing an in, on a huge range of topics. Obviously, I'll be covering the Tudors. Obviously, I'll be covering the monarchy. But I've just done a, one that I think is really great, on a statue. The statue of somebody was in the slave trade, uh, a man called William Beckford. It's one of the biggest objects in the Guildhall in London. But he was also a leading campaigner for radical politics and liberty and the extension of the franchise. Slave owner, radical libertarian. And that's, of course, the paradox at the heart of the American Revolution. Um, uh, so it, what I will try and do, I will try and give people that sense of the engagement with a mind. I mean, it was what I, I loved aspects of teaching in the years when I was a university teacher um, in which, but again, it needs what you were talking about. It needs the ability to talk without limits, to talk, to criticize, but not to criticize to destroy, but to criticize to develop and to encourage, and, but above all, to open the mind. I mean, history is wonderful because, by definition, you have to engage with different values. See, this is the great problem, the refusal to accept there can be any other values than the values of the moment. And Sir, Sir Thomas More had values that were pretty much the opposite of ours. That doesn't mean that he was a bad man. He was a very great man, but he just happened to have different values. It's a form of mental tourism that genuinely broadens the mind. And so I'll be trying to, I'll be, and I think talking is, we all know about reading, and reading is utterly fundamentally important. But I think talking, that we talk about the author's voice with a book, but talking, talking, the thing that's now offered with things like YouTube, actually enables you to have the reality of that conversation of two minds. I'm sure I will not get it right to begin with. There'll be a period of experiment. I'm hoping people will bear with me uh, and enjoy it and criticize me, which I'm very happy. Um, but also that we can all learn a little bit from each other.
Well, David, I'm very much looking forward to it. And as someone who runs a YouTube channel, I assure you, there will be plenty of criticism. <laughs> Don't you worry about that. <laughs> David, uh, David Starkey Talks, I'm really looking forward to it. Thank you so much for coming back. And thank you all for watching and listening at home. We will see you very soon with another brilliant episode like this one or Raw Show. They always go out at 7 p.m. UK, 2 p.m. Eastern Standard. Or if you like your trigonometry, on the go. Always available as a podcast. Take care and see you soon, guys. We hope you've enjoyed this incredible interview. Remember to subscribe and hit the bell button so that you never miss another fantastic episode. And if you believe that the work we do here at Trigonometry is important, support us by joining our locals community using the link below.